I know you have heard this before. Work smarter, not harder. Ford has heard it too. That's why the Ford F-150 truck helps you get the job done in the smartest way possible. I mean, the pro-access tailgate alone is a game changer. It improves access to the bed and cargo, which makes it easier to load in tight spaces. See? Smarter. It's also got a mobile power source and pro power on board, so you can power up to 7.2 kilowatts outside your F-150 truck. That is definitely working smarter. And imagine what you can do with that power at your next tailgate party. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. The following program is a PodcastOne.com production. He's a world champion wrestler, best-selling author, actor, and lead singer of Fozzie. Now, now he's rocking the podcast world. No, 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 no. This, this, this is Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho. Starring Chris Jericho. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. The Rock and roll. The spell you run down. We'll be broken by Chris Jericho. Woo! The People's Podcast has arrived. The remedy for boredom is here. Let's go for a ride. It's been a hard day's night. And I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. And when I get on to you, I find the things that you do, you make me feel alright. When I'm home, everything seems to be right. When I'm home, feeling you holding me tight, tight. Mm. <laughs> Man, I think that went into Betalica territory. Have you ever heard Betalica? It's a band that does uh, cross. Uh, they do they do Metallica versions of Beatles songs, and of course the guys sing. It's been a hard day, no, I should be sleeping like a log. Who, you know that sort of thing. Uh, very funny stuff. If you haven't heard it, go check it out on iTunes. Got a great show for you today. Last week we lost Robin Williams, one of the greatest comedians of all time, and actually one of the greatest actors of all time. Let's uh, let's be honest about that. I called my friend Jim Norton, um, longtime uh, comedian and a friend of Robin Williams. A lot of great stories that Jim has about Robin. I wanted to kind of get a little closure uh, about the horrible passing of Robin, and, and Jimmy came through huge. So many uh, great memories and uh, great stories about Robin Williams, plus a longtime member of the Opie and Anthony show. Big controversy, Anthony uh, Cumia, good friend of mine, uh, fired recently from Opie and Anthony, um, and Jimmy will tell us the background story about that. Plus, uh, Jimmy, also uh, talking about Robin Williams, wrote an incredibly moving piece about Robin's passing uh, last week on time.com. You might want to check that out as well. 
It's kind of what made me want to talk to Jimmy. Um, I've got some of my own favorite Robin Williams moments to share with you. I pulled some clips. We're going to go through Robin's uh, most famous characters and uh, his most famous talk show appearances. Robin Williams is my inspiration and my hero uh, as far as being a talk show guest whenever I do The Tonight Show or Jimmy Fallon, which is now the same thing. Uh, you know, Kimmel, Ellen, all the ones I've done, I always think about how Robin Williams acts during his uh, appearances. Plus, SummerSlam was on Sunday in Los Angeles. I'll talk about that as well. But first, you know I wouldn't be doing this at all if not for you guys. I just want to say thanks to all of you who've subscribed to Talk is Jericho on iTunes. And thanks to those of you for leaving the five-star ratings and comments. It's amazing. I appreciate the support. If you're digging the show, please tell your friends about it. I'll share some of your comments and do some shout-outs after we talk to Jimmy Norton. Big, big thanks also to those of you doing your Amazon shopping through my links at podcastone.com. That's the easiest way to support the show. Amazon, proud sponsor of Talk is Jericho. And every time you shop at Amazon through my link, Amazon gives you a small percentage of your purchase back to the show to help us cover production costs. Listen, you don't have to buy anything special. It won't cost you anything extra. But if you're going to be shopping anyways, please go to podcastone.com first. Click on the Keep Our Podcasts Free banner at the top of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button. I've got Amazon links for the US, the UK, and Canada A up on there. So do it right now and support my show. Okay. SummerSlam weekend. We just finished it up in Los Angeles. Uh, Had a great uh, show and then a great Raw right afterwards in Las Vegas. SummerSlam, I think, to me... Uh, was a better show overall than WrestleMania. I think it's one of the best shows of the year. I don't think there were any bad matches on the show. Uh, right from the, the pre-show kickoff, Rob Van Dam versus Cesaro. I mean, Rob still delivers. He knows exactly what he needs to do. and He, he, he brings it. Every match that he has always gets the reactions. And Cesaro is just a a, a comet. He's, he's, a, he's a burning, rising star waiting to happen. And it's just a matter of time before he gets the big shove. Love The Miz and Dolph Ziggler. It's cool that Dolph won. Miz's new gimmick, by far my favorite gimmick Miz has ever had. I mean, he's just so ridiculous and pompous, and he feels it. He loves it, and that's important. When you feel something as a performer, you really, um, you can really embrace that, you know, and uh, just the, the, the shades and the ridiculous ring jacket and just the way he acts and the moneymaker and all that sort of stuff. Very, very cool. Miz is doing great. And Dolph, you know, he's just waiting for, for the right time. And fans are waiting as well. And they got a, a, a nice little chunk of that for Dolph to be the, the Intercontinental Championship. Uh, I thought Swagger and Rusev had a great match. Rusev did some amazing selling. A lot of kind of really subtle su- sells. Where I actually thought uh, coming in, you know, halfway through the, the match, because I was busy doing my own stuff, I thought that Rusev might actually be hurt. Uh, watching how he was subtly selling his leg. And Swagger did a great job too, man. i got to give credit to Swagger. A lot of people forget that I actually dropped the world title to Swagger in Las Vegas, which is where I'm recording this right now. So um, big guy, good-looking guy, always works well. He just needs the right the right gimmick and the right story, and he had that last night. So great performance by both of those guys. Um, obviously Rollins and Ambrose, just a killer match, a very much of a stunt show type match. Lumberjack fighting through the arena. Uh, some people are calling it kind of a Ring of Honor match. I just call it more of a hardcore, no rules. But still, they, they put on a, a great performance as well. Really loved it. And I, I thought my match with Bray Wyatt, if I do say so myself, was, was killer. Um, you know, when you follow a match like uh, Rollins and Ambrose, which is all about the stunts and all about the 
you know, the uh, intensity through the crowd. We work more of a character type thing. And, I, you know, much like Big Show, people forget that Big Show's a giant. You know, we have him do all these funny things and he's a comedian and he's taking a lot of bumps. But sometimes you have to have him just knock people out and have people remember just how big he is. And that's what I wanted people to do with Wyatt and his spider walk and just the way he is. He's very creepy. And that spider walk is amazing. I mean, this is a guy who's probably 280, almost 300 pounds, doing a back bridge and walking. I couldn't do that. I weighed 205 pounds. So I think we kind of see it every night and forget just how unique it is. And that's why I really wanted to sell that and kind of throws me off my game. If you saw somebody do that, you'd probably lose it. So um, I really enjoyed that. I'm going to say it was another great match on the show. Stephanie, great performance. Uh, Brie and Nikki, great performance. But Stephanie's just amazing. She's one of the best best characters on the show. She definitely is a um, – she's her father's daughter for sure. I mean she – you can tell for, since she was – got in the business that Vince has coached her and, and you know I think Vince probably lives vicariously through her because she's she's a McMahon dude the way she sells the way she acts and even athletically she did a great job uh, all across the board so congrats to Steph congrats congrats and I loved the Cena Lesnar match I mean haven't seen a match like that in a long time and actually remind me you know, all Japan pro wrestling in the 90s you have Masawa and Kobashi and um Tawe, all these guys like that, uh, that were putting all the, all these killer, killer matches. And they would always go 50 minutes, you know. Kawada was another one of the guys who was really good. They, they put on these world title matches, and they go 45, 50, 60 minutes. And people would really get into it, but not until the first 30 or 35 minutes were, were finished because they knew that the finish was not going to happen until later on in the match. Then one night they put on a Budokan made event and they did a, a four minute match and finished the match in four minutes for the world title. And people were so shocked and confused, but they always popped afterwards for every single false finish in the matches because they never knew when the finish was coming. That's what happened last night. Cena got the crap kicked out of him. The, 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 the hero, John Cena, everybody who's talking about Super Cena, you can shut up because John got the, the, the shit kicked out of him last night at SummerSlam, and showed that Brock Lesnar is an unstoppable monster. And that's what it's all about. we got some great storylines going into the to the next pay-per-view. I'm still going to be around for the next pay-per-view. All you pundits and naysayers who said, Jericho's gone after SummerSlam. He's just coming back to, to hawk his music. I mean, that's bullshit. That makes me mad, too. I came back because I love wrestling. I love being in the WWE. I'm not full-time. I don't claim to be, but I come back for as long as I can, as much as I can, as long as I can uh, still perform at the highest level that I've set for myself. And I love the WWE. It's, it's, it's my home. So is Fozzie. You know, Fozzie's going out on the road again. Theory of a Dead Man. We start September 17th. And, of course, Do You Want to Start a War is the new record that is kicking ass on the charts. You want to pick it up? You don't have it yet? What are you waiting for? Don't be a nerd. All right. Robin Williams. I remember Robin Williams when I was just a kid. I remember I saw Popeye in the movie theater. And I was really impressed by how funny he was. And, of course, um, Mork and Mindy, you know, is right at the right age to really dig that. He played Mork from Ork. Shazbot, nano, nano. And it was like in the in the 70s. It was like a total, like, you know, the catchphrase is kind of like, Mr. Kata, Mr. Kata. So uh, he was uh, just a, a really, really funny per, uh, performer. I love the fact that Mork actually got into a fight with the Fonz. Like, Mork came to Happy Days, of all things, 
and like made Fonz go like basically wacko. You know, he slowed him down, and Fonz, you know, he, he, he was like, you know, Mork versus Fonz. Uh, I pulled up a clip from that. I think two of my biggest heroes from the 70s. I loved the Fonz when I was a kid, and I loved uh, Mork and Mindy when I was a kid. And, um, well, let's go. When, when the Fonz and Mork met for the first time on Happy Days. Uh, wait a minute. Let me tell you something. You ain't taking my buddy here. You gotta get through me first. Oh, splendid. A holly-tacker. I love a holly-tacker. What is a holly-tacker? In your language, specimen, it is a challenge. If your champion defeats me, you do not have to go with me. All right, let me get this straight. If I win, you don't take the specimen here. You read me, creature. Let us make it official. <laughs> then we must introduce the local celebrities. <laughs> Can we get on with this now? Anytime you're ready, I have been challenged on 200 planets. I am undefeated. So am I. Fonzie, you can't let him collapse the building. All right, all right, oh, 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 stop. Just stop. You admit defeat? Yeah, all right. You... You... <laughs> Tell him. When? Yeah. Now I must leave your planet Earth, but I trip my crippler to you, sir. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, and then he, he put out this record called The Night at the Met. It was one of my favorites, um, his stand-up comedian album. And he just was so – such a, just a, a legitimately funny comedian. And the thing that I always loved about him is he would always throw so much stuff against the wall. If this joke didn't work, he'd try that one. If that joke didn't work, he'd try this one. If this joke did work, he'd go with that one. And he he's, he's my inspiration whenever I do talk show appearances. Uh, very manic and frantic. He gets up. He sings. He dances. He doesn't stick to the script. He says whatever he wants to say. And I always try and have a little Robin Williams in any uh, talk show appearance I do because it makes it so much more exciting. And, and, and the one time I did Tonight Show with Jay Leno, I went full on Robin Williams and I was only supposed to get four minutes as the second guest and I ended up with ten minutes because it's entertaining. It's fun. You never know what's going to happen. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a little uh, clip from Robin Williams' first Tonight Show appearance. And when he says, what is this, flipper? And looks up in the air, it's like the boom mic. So he stands up and, and the boom mic gets caught in the shot. And of course, what does he do? He uses it and, and puts it as a part of his bit. Let's check it out. Where where is home for you, or did you come from a home? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they said all the people at the institution, Tommy. <laughs> if you haven't taken your medication yet, it's gonna be fine. <laughs> They're back at twelve. Back at twelve. Yeah. No. How are you, Mr. Williams? I'm real fine. I'm... <laughs> Look at this thing. Look, flipper. <laughs> <laughs> right now, there's a sound man going. What are you doing? Oh, God. I better relax, relax, relax. It's okay. I'm on TV. You're a nice man. You won't hurt me. No, no. No, no. (laughs) All right, let me just one sip. I'm certain. Okay, thank you. Don't be afraid. The sores went away. (laughs) Is it simplex two, is it? One. One A real man can stand up to herpes. (laughs) So funny. And it's great hearing, you know, Johnny Carson and Ed McMahon, all three of those amazing comedic geniuses, all gone. And that first night show appearance was probably in about 82 or 83. But let's go listen to Robin Williams in 1991. You can see the advancement that he's had. Well, it's nice to see doing that real... Simple uh, stuff again. You know, that real heavy drama show has kept yeah. him, you know. Doing that Shakespeare stuff. You think about Shakespeare, you think about a man basically with the education, second grade education, wrote some of the greatest poetry of all times. I think maybe not. I don't <laughs> Wandering around Stratford after a couple of beers, knocking on doors, going... <laughs> Is this to be or not to be? <laughs> 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 I'm 
Oh, that is mine. <laughs> That's mine. I'm William Shakespeare, right? Kiss my tights. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one serious question all tonight. Oh, one, one serious question? When you're thing? doing the thing like you, you're, and you're, first of all, you're a good actor. You're really a, a, a marvelous actor. But, Oh, oh, but, it's so nice. I've been nominated twice. It's so nice to watch somebody else win. <laughs> and they read the name and they go, and the winner for best actor is someone other than you. <laughs> and you sit there and they keep the camera on and you you're and you're supposed, supposed to, go. to go like, I'm so happy. <laughs> it's, wouldn't it be nice if you could be really truthful and go, Just to be among your peers is yeah. honor enough, sure. It is. Now the hey, you don't even have a green card. Give it to me. <laughs> Robin, I mean, this is great stuff. I mean, Carson, just, you know, just, it's, it's, it's good stuff, man. Um, and also, Robin did all the talk shows. David Letterman, he did a great bit one time where he was talking about Hitler having a speech impediment. And the funny thing is, when he did this, I'm going to play the clip for you, but he had uh, this really big, long beard. So he was just sitting there, like, you'll hear it, doing Hitler with a speech impediment with this big, long Santa Claus beard. He always showed up with like different facial hair, different hairstyles, different glasses, very loud outfits. Yeah, Hitler with a speech impediment. Uh, but that night is crazy, and your career is confirmed. And I've said this before. If it was me, if I were an actor and I won an Academy Award, I'd just quit trying. <laughs> Don't give up, Dave. No, but I mean, wait, the, for the rest of my career, people would just kiss my ass. That has not happened. <laughs> even, even, I love the fact, even Colin Firth, who yeah. won, he said, my career has peaked, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing, he won for the King's Speech, was his amazing thing about having the, the impediment. Right. Well, I mean, if Hitler had an impediment, things would have been a lot different. We're <laughs> going to... That's just so funny. But also, too, Robin was a great actor and did some amazing uh, characters besides Mork for Mork. I think the first one I remember seeing was Adrian Crownhour uh, in Good Morning Vietnam, kind of this quick-talking Vietnam wartime DJ who, who made a difference and really entertained the troops. Uh, of course, with the famous the famous uh, tagline, "Good morning Vietnam." Let's check it out. Good morning Vietnam. Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Time to rock it from the Delta to the DMZ. Is that me or does that sound like an Elvis Presley movie? Viva Da Nang. Oh, Viva Da Nang. Denying me. Hey, is this a little too early for being that loud? Hey, too late. It's 0600. What's the O stand for? Oh, my God, it's early. Great stuff. You can tell he was just totally riffing. So much improv on Robin Williams. And I heard he did the same thing when he was Aladdin. They didn't even really have a script for him. They just gave him a couple bullet points, and off he went, uh, playing the genie in Aladdin. 10,000 years will give you such a crick in the neck. Hang on a second. Ah. Whoa! Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm telling you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin! Hello, Aladdin. Nice to have you on the show. Can we call you Al? Or maybe just Din? Or how about Lottie? Sounds like, here, boy. Come on, Lottie. Here, Aladdin. Here, Aladdin. 
Uh, I love that movie. I went with my my ex girlfriend in 1993, and I just loved it because Robin Williams was so ridiculous. Also, very funny uh, in the Birdcage. Uh, when he's talking about all the dances he's going to do. What about me? What do I do? Do I just stand here like an object? No. You do an eclectic celebration of the dance. You do fussy, fussy, fussy. You do Martha Graham, Martha Graham, Martha Graham. Or Twyla, Twyla, Twyla. Or Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd, Michael Kidd. Or Madonna, Madonna, Madonna. I always love that. Fussy, fussy, fussy. Madonna, Madonna. Uh, I mean, just so over the top, man. They must have been so funny to to be in scenes with him because he just just was nuts. Like he just didn't care. Uh, but my all time favorite Robin Williams character was definitely Mrs. Doubtfire. If you haven't seen it, you got to go watch it. He plays a divorced dad who uh, loses uh, custody of his kids. So he dresses up as an old lady to become their nanny. And he's just off the charts. But there's a really great scene where he goes to the uh, social worker to try and convince her that he's good enough to be with his kids and uh, she asks him if he's a comedian or all the voices that he can do. And this is uh, what he answers with from Mrs. Doubtfire. I do voices. Yeah. We've come to this planet looking for intelligent life. Oops, we made a mistake. We're happy to be in America. Don't ask for a green card. <laughs> I want you in the worst Well, it's certainly a rough meeting. and It's not going very well for me. I'll tell you that. Hey, boss, give it a change. She's going to loosen up any moment. <laughs> Look at me right now, money penny. I want to undo that bow and get to know you. Ah, I'm crazy to make a deal with you. Nancy and I are still looking for the other half of my head. Idiot! Idiot! I'm sitting on a gold mine. Don't make me smack it, sweetheart. I'll do it. I do a great impression of a hot dog. Mr. Hillard, do you consider yourself humorous? I used to. <laughs> I love that. You think you're funny? Well, I used to, but you have convinced me otherwise. Um, just great stuff, Robin Williams. I mean, it's such a tragic thing, you know. Uh, and depression is real, guys. It's not you know, people who say that Robin was a coward or took the easy way out or whatever. That's bullshit. Uh, it's you know, it's a disease. It's like having cancer or being an alcoholic. It's something you can't control, and it's just a drag that he, you know, he took his own life from depression. Uh, you know, and 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 Jimmy Norton, my guest today, had that same depression. Jimmy was thankfully able to get out of it, but it just goes to show, even when you're on top of the world, I mean, one of the greatest of all time, still not good enough sometimes. So, hey, Robin Williams, I got to tell you, huge inspiration. I've been a fan since 1978, and I know you can't hear this, but I am a huge fan of yours. I love all the stuff he did, uh, just for laughs, a lot of charity stuff. Just a great, great human being, and um, man. You know, I love you, man, and I really appreciate all you did. We never met, and I'm sure there's millions of people who feel the same way, but you made me laugh. You always will. And just listening to some of those clips and some of those appearances, and two thumbs up to Robin Williams, uh, Shazbot Nanu Nanu. And uh, <laughs> that was my imitation of uh, Hitler <laughs> with the speech impediment. Great, great bits. Robin will never forget you. And Jim Norton is going to tell us some great stories about his time with Robin. Uh, he's next. But first. All right. There are some seriously talented luchadors in AEW and not all of them speak English, which can make putting together matches a little challenging sometimes. That's why I signed up for Rosetta Stone. I'm learning Spanish, amigos, eh, amigas. See, already learning. Haha, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. You don't even have to learn Spanish, though, because Rosetta Stone has 25 languages, including French, German, Korean, Arabic, and Polish, and Japanese. That's what I'm going to do next. I spent a lot of time in Japan, and I still work with a lot of Japanese wrestlers at AEW, like Takeshita. 
So having a better handle on the language will definitely show in the ring. Communication is key. And learning Spanish on Rosetta Stone has been so fun and easy. They've got this true accent feature that gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. Sort of like having a personal trainer for your accent. I'm using the app, but you can also do the lessons on desktop or laptop. I also like that I can download the lessons and do them offline, which is perfect for a plane. I can sit there on a flight and work on my Espanol. So don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Talk is Jericho listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash Jericho. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash Jericho today. That's rosettastone.com slash Jericho. Do it today. Talk is Jericho. All right, on the line here, my buddy, my old pal Jimmy Norton is here. What's going on, man? Hey, Chris. How you doing, man? I'm doing good. I appreciate you call, uh, calling me, Jimmy. It's funny because you've always got so much going on, but one of the reasons why uh, we've become such good friends over the years is because you love heavy metal as much as I do. I do, yes. And you just sent me, but one of the things that you love to do is is you also take pictures with... Uh, <laughs> You try and get as many pictures as you can with metal guys and rock guys. And you sent me a picture the other day, the worst photo ever with Ace Frehley, and it was just of his back. Oh, you know why I did it? Uh, I was at Ace Frehley's uh, release party for this uh, Space Invader album, and I got a photo with him and Eddie Trunk, like someone just snapped a photo, but it, I didn't have possession of it. I just figured that you'd get a kick out of the fact <laughs> that uh, I, was, I was that close to Ace and sending such a horrendous picture. <laughs> and by the way, remember we talked about being at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I interviewed Gene a couple of days before, and I said, look, I, would I have gotten the picture with all four of you if I had been there? And he said, well, yes, I know you, so we would have done it. And I really wanted to just throw myself in front of a bus because that's like, I almost canceled the gig and went to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame <laughs> to get the picture. I just couldn't do it. Well, it was funny because yeah, I was there, but I, of course, didn't have that type of access. I was just taking pictures from the stands. But just to see all four of them, like you said, on stage together again, probably for the last time, was a pretty cool experience. Yeah, I'm actually, Eddie Trunk showed me a photo he took, too, when he was there, because he was actually at Ace's table. And I, I was really, it did make me sad to know, like, they all look so good with their, with their trophies, and that probably is the last time all four of them will ever be on a stage together again. But you never know, man. You know, you throw enough money at somebody, hey, do one or two more shows, and then they come back and they do one or two more shows. I wonder if anything has been... Cause didn't it seem to you like this time Paul Stanley was more vocal about it? Like, Gene always gets crapped on, but it seemed like Paul was on Twitter being very vocal about the, the other members and wanting to perform with the new band. So I think Paul's a bigger part of this than people realize, too. Well, I, I agree. And actually, if, did you read his book? Paul's book? I, I did not, no, because I couldn't get him for an interview. Well, um, he, he talks in his book very candidly about how he's basically the leader of KISS. And I never really thought of that that way because, like, like you said, it always seemed like Gene was the guy who uh, who was kind of running the show. But it seems that Paul's kind of really the one who who calls the shots, and he was definitely on on a mission of just like burying Ace and and Peter both. Well, one of them said, I, I think it was Ace in his book that said that Paul would just doodle realistic looking penises all day. And I, and I bet you that, that that was one of those things that Paul is probably like, I'll never forgive him. Like drug talk or that type of stuff. They could probably forgive each other for certain things. But there was a couple of things. that Pete, One thing Peter said about Gene 
And then there was uh, that thing that Ace said about Paul. And I'm like, I'll bet you those were a couple of things that even they thought were like, I can never get beyond that statement. Well, yeah, you read some of those books, too. I remember in uh, in Keith Richards' book, you talk about how Mick Jagger had a small penis, and I think... Did he really? I didn't get that far into it. I started reading it, and I get distracted. Oh, I, I didn't realize he said that. He did say it, and that was actually one of the reasons why the Stones didn't get back together for a while, is I guess that Keith... Uh, was forced to apologize to Mick for all the things that he said about him. And I think it's probably one of those taboo things. Like If you're talking about your, your buddies in your band, you can't talk about penises. Not unless they're really impressive. Like, if you're, if you're in Pantera, I'll bet you that's all Phil wants people to talk about. Because I hear he's packing, like, ten. But, I mean, if you have a small penis and you're the leader of the, of the Rolling Stones, you probably do want to kind of keep that under your hat, you <laughs> yeah, know? Yeah, totally right. Keep it in your pants, shall we say. Yeah, <laughs> now, you mentioned that you uh, you were interviewing Gene. What did, what were you interviewing him for? Because I know you've done a lot of pretty big time interviews over the last little while for you know rock guys and metal guys. Well, he's doing a new reality show for him and Paul. Have that reality show for their uh, their team mm-hmm. on um, the football team. Yeah, fourth yes, and, fourth and loud. Fourth and loud, and he was coming around serious doing it. And I was supposed to get him and Paul together for the book about six months ago. But then the day before, Paul wasn't doing any rock channels. He only did, like, different... Uh, I guess he wanted Gene to do the rock stations, and he would do the other ones. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I was kind of wanted them both together. But I did Gene for, uh, for this new show. And I asked him about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and, you know, he gave it a good beating. And uh, <laughs> it was before... He's getting a lot of flack for that comment he made about people with depression and they should kill themselves but wasn't that an old interview wasn't that two years ago he said that yeah i, I remember that yeah it was i think it was a couple years ago and they're pulling it out like he's it's really weird all right that might have been a dumb thing to say but it's like they're pulling it out like he meant to reference robin williams it's like you know people really just like to crucify each other with things that they've said and, and, and take it out of context and put it into a context that makes it look like he said it about robin like Jesus, I mean, you know, he, he he expressed his condolences, and then people were coming after him for it. Well, I mean, that's what happens when you're in the public eye, Jimmy. I mean, I'm sure yeah. you've been a victim of that as well, especially when you're outspoken like Gene is. Uh, you say something, and they'll keep bringing it out over and over again. You know? Yeah, and it's a really uh, a, a guy named Kevin Brennan said it really well on a stage one time. He just said we live in a gotcha society, and I wish I had phrased it that way. It was such a, a simple and smart way to phrase it, but we just seem to like to get each other. It's like we're playing a game of tag, and I don't understand the satisfaction in watching people get in trouble like that. I just never quite got that. I remember uh, Dennis Miller did a, a routine or a, a bit a couple of years ago. I think it was called Schadenfreude or something like that, where it's like you want people to do bad, especially if they're in a public position. And I think that's something that society really enjoys when somebody kind of gets to the top of the mountain that they like to see people kind of get busted back down a bit, whether they, they, they deserve it or not. You know, it's something that kind of society breeds, I find. Yeah, and maybe it's, uh, look, we're, a, we're maybe a mob-oriented species, and, you know, we're getting less violent as time goes on. So it used to be we would drag people down the street or we would say they were a witch and then dunk them to death. And now, instead of doing that, we, we socially media gang. You know what I mean? I, I yeah. just think that we're the same animal that we've always been, but we're like a little less violent. It's almost like the, the, the physical aggression is coming out of us, but we just can't get rid of that pack mentality where we're just, we love just a feeding frenzy on somebody. 
Yeah, and, and you know, and because a lot of people aren't fans the way that we are, and we'll kind of give people, you know, the benefit of the doubt. Plus, we're in the public eye, as we know. But, I mean, I mean, like you said, like I said, you've gotten some really cool interviews over the years, and you told me about a cool one a, a while ago, but I wanted to ask you about it. Tell us about the time when you went to Ozzy's house. Was that for uh, to interview for Black Sabbath? Or was- yeah, I've interviewed them twice, I think, in Ozzy's house. It was uh, the first time... I forget what it was. I think it had something to do with other people with, with 13 when that came out. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to interview Ozzy, Geezer, and Tony in Ozzy's, like, sitting room. And uh, <laughs> I did it again, the same, the three of them, when they did that thing for Jay-Z's company for Beats, when Sabbath's albums, this was actually a cooler interview because they said Sabbath's albums were coming out on, on, on Beats uh, streaming. Hmm. So what they wanted me to do was sit down with each of the eight original albums and uh, oh, wow. and hand it to uh, and let Ozzy Geezer and Tony actually hold the album and look at the artwork and see what it brought back. And to be honest, I didn't think it'd be a great idea. I'm like, I'll do it, but the album covers aren't going to mean any. I was totally wrong. Like when they were all holding the album covers, it really did. I guess because they don't look at their own records a lot. They're like, oh yeah, you remember this? You remember that studio? And they all just started talking about that time. Wow. So whoever thought of that was a genius. And I realize I'm sitting here, I'm handing volume four to Geezer Butler. Um, you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, a, it's like a child. I think I'm handing Superman his cape. It was really, really a great, great... Uh, I've been so lucky to get to talk to those guys on numerous occasions. But so, so how do you end up getting that gig? Like They just know you're such a big fan, or is it for your show for, for uh, Boneyard, or how are you doing that? It, became, it honestly came about when... The first time we interviewed, we interviewed Ozzy a few times, and the first time we interviewed Sharon was when Opie and Anthony were on K-Rock, and Jim Belushi was in first, and then when uh, he came off, I heard Sharon said to him on the way in, like, how are those guys? Are they okay? Because she didn't know if we were going to be jerks. Mm-hmm. And so while we're on the air, Opie was talking about Ozzy, and he said to Sharon, Jimmy is the biggest Ozzy fan. Like, any, he's a ferocious. Anybody who badmouths Ozzy, he attacked. <laughs> so she kind of liked the fact that I was so adamant about defending her husband. So, like, from that point, we kind of had, like, a friendly thing, and when she would come in, she would always come on our show, and she knew I was this amazing Aussie fan. Like, I just, I loved him, and I would, you know, mm-hmm. I just, you know, spat on people who badmouthed him. <laughs> so I think that kind of got her to, like, okay, I can trust him interviewing Ozzy. He won't try to make an ass out of Ozzy. He's not trying to get an embarrassing soundbite. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think she knew that my intentions were pure, and as time went on, and, and he and I had good interviews, um, you know, because we would talk about recovery or whatever we would talk about. Um, they, you know, one time they get for Scream, uh, I had to do, they said to me, look, I, we need someone to do a one-hour interview with Ozzy, mm-hmm. where it's just you and him, and you talk about the record for an hour and him for an hour, and then we cra- break it up into pieces and we sell it to radio stations. So uh, she uh, requested that I do it. Wow. When it, yeah, I was, a trim- I, dude, I was so nervous. Because it was, like, in Opie and Anthony, you know, unfortunately, Anthony got fired, but, mm-hmm. like, one of us always has something to say. Like, so the first time Ozzy came in, in in 2005, I sat there just literally like a lizard and, I, and, and said nothing. <laughs> I just stared at him. And Anthony was brilliant. He was just conversational. And then finally I spoke up after 10 minutes. But me and Ozzy in a room for an hour, I'm like, dude, if I suck, like, there's no one to bail me out. I was so scared that I had six pages of notes. And then he and I sat down, and I was so, it meant so much to me that I kind of went into the area of not being nervous. Mm-hmm. Like, you ever been so nervous about something that you actually flip to the other side, and you're like, you're almost numb with fear, so it goes okay? That's right, yeah. 
And we just started talking about recovery and sobriety, and we just branched off and had an hour discussion. It was amazing. Sorry I'm rambling so much. No, no, that's okay. I'm coffee up talking about Ozzy. I'm so happy. No, but it's funny because I met Ozzy. uh, He he co-hosted Monday Night Raw a few years ago, and I had been doing something with the guest hosts all the time. And there were some good ones like Bob Barker and Mike Tyson, but there were some bad ones like Al Sharpton was awful and guys like that. So when Ozzy finally came, I, I said to Vince McMahon, can I please... Please do something with Ozzy. I mean, this is one of my all-time heroes. Sure. So he 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 kind of had us do this backstage bit together, and it was cool. But getting a chance to actually sit there, and I finally got to ask Ozzy the question that I've always wanted to ask him all these years, and that was, what does SATO stand for? <laughs> you know, the ultimate fan question, right? Sure. Do you know the answer? You know, I, I believe, we, we all think it's sail across the ocean, but I believe it stands for nothing. What it stands for, he told me, he said that, he's like, whenever I write lyrics, if I can't think of a title, I just use initials. And I guess he had just had lunch with, he's like, me and my ex-wife and Sharon, her ex-husband, just had lunch. So it stands for Sharon, Allen, and then he's sitting there thinking for a while, Thelma and Ozzy. And it's like, (laughs) I don't know, that's what it stands for. And the coolest thing of all was he couldn't remember his ex-wife's name that he has like three kids with. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, Sharon Allen, Thelma and Ozzy. That's amazing. Yes. And then um, I asked him, what does AVH stand for, which is from No More Tears? Yes. And he said it stands for the Austin Vila Highway, which is a highway that runs right near his house in Birmingham. That's amazing. Isn't that crazy? Dude, I did not know that answer for either of those. I know NIB was just nib. Yes. Um, I, I think it had something to do with the, the they were making fun of Bill's mustache or beard. It's some really weird answer. It's not Nativity in Black. It's some weird Yes. He, he said. Yes. SATO, I did not know that. That's what it was. SATO, uh, AVH, and then I asked him about NIB, which he said uh, he couldn't think of a title, and he was looking at Bill Ward's beard, which looked like the nib of a pencil. Oh, so okay, yeah. Just called it nib. <laughs> what a great fan question. SAT, that's even a better question than NIB. Because yeah. NIB has been there for, SATO is not as nearly as big a song for Ozzy as, as NIB is for Sabbath. And that's a great fan question. Well, yeah, especially when, like, you know, Ozzy probably meets a million people that claim they're fans. But then when we get to a guy like you or me that we can actually ask him questions like that, I'm sure you got a kick out of it because he's like, wow, this guy really is a fan. He's not just claiming to be one, you know? Which was cool. You mentioned that. Uh, I mean, you you've been a regular on opening opening Anthony for years and years and years. Uh, and op- uh, sorry, Anthony recently just got fired. How did yeah. you feel about that whole controversy? You know, it's like it was very very uh, upsetting because a couple of reasons. One, like, yeah, all right, look, Anthony goes on Twitter. He says some things. I, I think he should have rephrased some of the things he said mm-hmm. because when you get that angry and you're in the public eye, like you know, like any of those things, if you want to discuss racism. You can discuss problems in the black community. Black people talk about it. If somebody assaults you, you can call them a savage because behaviorally the person who's hitting you. But when you mix all of those things together in a very, very angry string, the way I looked at it was the water becomes very clouded and muddy, and it just just becomes too much of one big puzzle. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like any of those things alone are okay. Uh, but in an angry rant, it becomes difficult. What bothered me about the press, and it's the, it's the reason I despise the media, mm-hmm. is because, like, okay, he said some things he should have not have said or he should have rephrased. However, Anthony did not hit the woman who was punching him. Anthony is armed at all times. He didn't even think to pull out his weapon. Like, mm-hmm. he's a responsible gun owner who behaved nonviolently 
while being assaulted. And it's a really weird thing how that got totally glossed over by the press. It wasn't like Anthony, like I would almost see their point if she had struck him and he had pulled out his pistol and pistol whipped her right. and yelled something racist and tried to claim she assaulted Totally different behavior, mm-hmm. totally different picture. But the reality was, what, that's like a microcosm of what we are. What you do is not important. What you say is important. And it's just nonsense, because your yeah. whole life you're raised that your actions are more important. Like, you know, uh, Imus, when he said nappy-headed hose. All right, that was you know, maybe not the most advised joke at the moment. Right. A week later, he was do- they fired him the week he was doing the children's cancer charity that he does every year. Like, that's how disgusting CBS was. Mm-hmm. That was when he does that, that C.J. Sids Foundation thing where he raises millions of dollars for, I think, childhood cancer. And uh, they fired him the week he was doing it, so they didn't do the charity. Wow, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That, I don't know if you, that's the timing. Getting mm-hmm. rid of him because of his naughty words was more important than what he was doing that week, which was helping kids who were dying. <laughs> right, right, right. Like, right. like what, where's our priorities, man? It's... It's a really bizarre soul sickness that America has. Like, that's how you know we're doing really well. Uh, and maybe this is just Western culture, is that we're obsessing over the, the, the naughty things each other says, and we're bypassing the, the bad things that we don't do. I think the problem, too, in Anthony's case was that he tweeted it, so it's a public record. It's something you can sure. see and read and look at, whereas he could get attacked on the street and get beat down or whatever, but nobody saw that so therefore that's almost kind of swept under the carpet and that's the problem we were talking about this earlier he's he's a a famous person in the public eye and now suddenly he has to be you know he must be punished and and you know on top of that you're breaking up one of the one of the best comedy radio teams that there is as far as opening anthony and yourself included so how has that affected the show Uh, and are you continuing forward just as opie or yeah, me and Opie, sorry, buddy. Me, me and Opie, I actually went to Anthony's house last night and saw him for the first time in about a month. Um, you know, it, we all are in a weird position here. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, people, a lot of people thought that Opie and I should have just quit or make yourselves get fired. You know, these yeah. It's like, dude, first of all, I'm under contract. Um, if they fire, let's just say Opie and I quit, and all of a sudden they lost even more subs, mm-hmm. Sirius could sue us for breach of contract. Oh, right. Uh, and even if we win. We still have to pay for attorneys, mm-hmm. and you don't get people. People have no idea the law. Like, I don't just get attorney fees paid for by Sirius if Sirius loses. I would have to prove that their lawsuit was a ludicrous, completely like egregious breach of the public, and them suing me for breach of contract would not do that. So I'd have to pay for lawyers. It's a no-win situation for me, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't want to just quit because I need the money. I mean, I right, your job incoming. So Anthony is doing his thing right now. He's actually doing extraordinarily well financially with it. Opie and I are up for negotiations in October. We don't know what's going to happen. Will we work with Anthony? Will we? St- I just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have to keep making my living. I miss Anthony terribly. Um, you know, I love Opie. I'm comfortable with Opie. I miss Anthony terribly. It's, you know, I would feel the same way if Opie left, dude. It's, it's when there's three of you and you're like a tripod, even though those guys are the, it's their show. And they are the more important functional parts of the show. Like, a much bigger hit is Opie leaving or Anthony leaving than me leaving. But the reality was they fired Anthony. So me and him are just trying to balance what was a three-legged stand on two legs. And, yeah. you know, we're bringing in different people. 
and we're doing the best we can with it, but it's a very difficult transition. Yeah, because like I said, you've been a regular on that show for years. It's almost like Run DMC, where there was three guys, but only two had their name in the band, and that was the same. It was like Opie and Anthony and Norton, but you didn't get the on the marquee. But yeah, you guys, like you said, it was a three-part uh, band here that you guys had, and now you're losing a big part of that. So Right, and with Run DMC, which is a great example, because whatever Jay contributed musically, like with the three of us, People are seeing the creative process as it happens mm-hmm. because it's what our show is every day. Like with Run DMC, you don't see the creative process until it's completed. Right. It would, it would be almost like if they were putting out a record every day of their studio process. You go, oh my God, these guys suck. And then you're like, well, Jay is gone. <laughs> so you know what I mean? It's right. like the picture hearing them every day without that third uh, piece. But that's third a good way to put it. Um, and I never wanted my name on it, to be honest. I'm okay with the brand being Opie and Anthony when it was because that's those guys were there before I came along. So I was happy just to be a part of their brand. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This, this is Talk is Jericho. Comedian and host of the new Vice.com program, The Jim Norton Show. Also a good friend of mine, Jimmy Norton, is here with us. Jimmy, I read your piece on Time.com that you wrote about Robin Williams. Very, very moving piece. I know that you knew Robin. Uh, You might have even been friends with him as well. And you've gone through some of the same things that Robin had struggled with in his life, some of the depressions and those sort of things. Tell us about the reasons why you wrote that piece for Time.com and your own experiences with Robin Williams and how you feel about the whole situation. Well, you know, I got a call from uh, my friend, and uh, she's, you know, has a lot of media in, and she said, look, I'm pitching a piece to you uh, for time for you to write. Do you want to do it if they want you to do it about what happened and your experience with it? And I'm like, okay, if they want me to do it, I'll do it. So they, that's how the piece kind of came about. And it was more like, you know, a lot of people, what they're doing with Robin is they're, they're going out and doing a million interviews, and it's almost capitalizing mm-hmm. without the, you know, like, hey, look, we all want our face on TV. So I was very hesitant to do anything that would be seen as exploitive. So I'm like, let me write about what I know, which is obviously my experiences with him were at the comedy clubs. And when we saw each other at events, and he really was, and I, he was, Ozzy described Paul McCartney. He said, he's a lovely guy. <laughs> and that's, that was what Robin was. He was a lovely guy. Like, he would come in to the cellar. And from the very first time I met him, and every subsequent time, he would come up to the table, he would sit with the comics, he would talk to us, he would joke with us, he would listen. You know, he just wanted to be a part of the culture we had there at that moment. Mm -hmm. He was not this dominating guy who wanted to walk in and be treated like a celebrity. Um, He's the biggest of all of them. Like, Seinfeld's a beast, and Chris Rock's a beast, as far as, like, fame is concerned. These guys are legitimate superstars. Right. But Robin won an Oscar, and he was nominated for Oscars. Like, you know, Robin was a different level than anybody, man. That's a great point. He was was above all of us, and Jerry would say that. I mean, he he did something that none of us were doing. Mm -hmm. And he would come in and be the most humble, down-to-earth guy, uh, just having fun with the comedians and laughing along. And it really, when you see enough big comics come in and not talk to the other guys a guy like that really makes you love and appreciate him and uh you know i understood you know i didn't know he was as depressed as he was um i knew he had substance abuse issues because he talked about it and you know we know a lot of the same people so it was no secret but you know i i I don't know if i've ever attempted suicide to the point where robin actually went through with it 
Um, for me, I've done the cutting. And, uh, you know, it's funny. The first thing I thought when they said it is possible asphyxiation, the first question I asked was, was he standing or kneeling? And it was a weird question. Why is that? I, I, because I know other people that have done it kneeling. Mm. Uh, Jagger's girlfriend did it kneeling. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in the times where I recently, actually, a couple of years ago, I was so depressed after I shot a special. And I, I didn't talk about this in the article, but I put a belt around my neck. And I, I, I kind of tied it to a doorknob. And I knelt forward. And I just felt the pressure building. And I'm just thinking, can I do this? Mm. Not that I was going to in that moment. This is, this is, I, I knew I was not going to do it. But I wanted to feel it, and I wanted to see, is this possibly something that I could do? And then you feel it, and it starts to get very, very tight, and then you can pull back. There's a time to... It's almost like... You ever see that scene at the end of The Sopranos in season six when the guy hangs himself? Yes. Um, and he's struggling violently. I think that that's what so many people are worried about, is regretting it the second you do it. Yeah. So that was almost like a way of easing into it, and then it's the most peaceful way to do it, if it's any consolation. Because uh, you can kind of just feel yourself getting tight, and then you stop. He just didn't stop. So I really related to that a lot, and I can understand the mentality of being overtired and not sleeping and running around with God knows whatever was on his mind and, and saying, I'm just valueless, I am worthless. And yet suicide's a selfish act, but then there's also the part of you when you're thinking that way, you're really not thinking, screw the people I love. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have kids, but I knew it would devastate my parents if I did that or people who love me. But it's almost like knowing that is like knowing uh, that the Batman does something or the Joker does something. It doesn't seem real. It seems like a film that you're thinking of because you're so wrapped up in feeling utterly valueless and devoid of any contribution. Um, and like literally you, just, you hate yourself so much in that moment that you don't feel like you're removing anything important from people, if that makes any sense. So the selfishness is like, yeah, I'm going to hurt people, but the fact that I feel like I'm removing somebody worthless is overriding emotionally, so you, you don't feel like you're do, taking away anybody important. So, but, but, but I mean, I mean, probably asking why is almost a, a, a hard question to answer. But I mean, obviously, Jamie, I, I've known you for a while, and legitimately, you are a very funny person. I mean, we did Thank that, you. you know, that Zach Wild roast. I mean, you killed everybody, you blew everybody away, and I was like, this guy. And same with Robin Williams, obviously, possibly the funniest stand-up comedian of all time. Where does that depression come in when your your job is to be so funny and so happy and so hey 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 and then and then you're 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 contemplating suicide? Humor is a weird thing, you know, and and, I, and it's like I don't I don't say this in in the vein of like the tortured artist I, I, at mm-hmm. all, you know. But the reality is, most funny people like I've always thought of being funny as kind of a reaction to something. Like you know, for me. You know, obviously as a kid, for whatever reason, I had low self-esteem, my I, girls didn't like me, and I was good at making people laugh. That's where my moment of power came from, was my ability to make people laugh. So you kind of uh, develop that because it combats feeling lousy. I feel lousy, I feel like I'm worthless, but I don't feel like I'm worthless when I'm doing this and I'm good at this. So my personality immediately associates myself with being funny. And then, like, so humor is kind of a reaction to feeling awful. Mm-hmm. So to me, the feeling awful stuff or the depression or the, the self-doubt is already there, and the humor springs from it. But that's why. Mm. Um, you know what I mean? You're always kind of digging yourself out of feeling miserable or feeling sad. or Like at a party, I am, you know, I'm, I'm terrible. I, I don't have any self-esteem <laughs> to talk to a girl. I just, I, you know, I'm 46 years old. I still suck at it. <laughs> but I know that I can make people laugh standing around me. Mm-hmm. So that's where my 
shining moment comes from, where somebody else just may be a very interesting or great storyteller or be very good-looking or whatever. We all have our gifts, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for funny people, I think most of it comes from, from that place. Look at Pryor. I mean, Richard Pryor, I think, is the greatest who ever lived. And look at Pryor. I mean, his mother was a prostitute. He was abused. He tried to set himself on fire. He poured liquor on himself and tried to burn himself alive. I mean, you know, it's, yeah. it's just a craziness. Plus substance abuse, too, don't forget. Uh, in my case, I'm lucky I've been very sober, so I don't even have that reason, unfortunately. But, you know, for performers, man, and I'm sure in wrestling, too, you see that what, what people get offered, uh, by, you know, oh, yeah. what is acceptable in your world or, or in the world I live in is so much different than what an accountant can get away with. You're right. Like, you know, you know, you, do, you probably know guys that after a match will take three girls into the dressing room or into a bathroom and back. You know, an accountant can't do that or a lawyer can't do that and walk into court smelling like booze and sex. <laughs> but a comic can. You know what I mean? One of your wrestling buddies can. It's, it's like a, it's a different... A rock star of, can, yep. Oh, my God, yeah. yeah. No, oh, I forgot. Jesus, yes, the music. I mean, that's even worse than... That, you, rock stars, you guys get away with even more than wrestlers and, and, and <laughs> comics combined. I mean, you guys can do it on stage in front of people. <laughs> Um, but you know what I mean? So yeah. we also are trained that we can do a lot and not be judged harshly on it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but let's, let's talk about some of the, the, the good, good memories of Rob Williams that you have. Tell us about like the, the, the first couple of times you met him. I mean, did he, how, how did he watch your set or talk to us about that a bit? You know, it's funny. He watched the one, the only time I know, there's a couple of times he came down to watch me. Um, you know, I guess within the last few years he was, when he was there, he found out I was going on and he was going to come down. He would go on right after me. It was a really nice thing. He wouldn't bump me. Like, mm. unless he absolutely had to. But, I mean, he would always go, like, hey, what are you on? And if I was like, oh, I'm on, it, uh, I'm on next, he'd go, okay, I'll go after Jim. You know, which was, it was like a nice respect thing he was doing for me, um, just letting me know, like, no, you've earned your place here. I'll go after It was really... So what, 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 cl- what club was that at? Comedy Cellar in New York. So what you're saying is that it, when Robin Williams wants to do uh, 10 minutes or 20 minutes, he'll just show up at a club. But when Robin Williams shows up, somebody else has to get bumped off the show that night. Yes, or put on later. Like, if Robin wants to come in and do an hour, Robin can do an hour. Gotcha, Robin right. had carte blanche. Like, yeah. he literally could have said, I'm going to go up and do three hours, and he would have been allowed to do that. And, again, it doesn't mean that they don't respect you, because there's times where somebody famous goes on in front of me, and I know they like me. It's a time issue. Or, but if you happen to be on next and they can wait a couple of minutes, they'll let you go first. It's just a very nice gesture. Mm-hmm. It's like they know that they're going on, they're bumping people, but they're showing you a nice gesture. Um, but I had the same manager as Robin, and, and, and Billy Crystal at one night he brought them in to watch my set when I was warming up for Kimmel. That's probably 2007. Wow. And uh, I, I wasn't particularly good that night. I was nervous because I knew they were there. And it was a clean seven-minute set that was structured that I had to do. But just the love that these guys showed me, and especially Robin. And Billy was nice, but Robin really went out of his way to go, oh, so great. You know, just being <laughs> overly generous. And I knew, like, I knew what he was doing. I'm like, this guy's just being loving right now. It was such a nice thing for him to do. And I knew why he was doing it. And, uh, you know, and I told the story in the, the article, and I'd forgotten this, that you know, when he went to, uh, I mean, I just thought of this when I was writing it, was that when my parents went to Atlantic City to see him, and uh, David, our, our, our manager, got them back to say hello at the meet and greet, uh, you know, when he found out who they were, he walked up to them, he just treated them so special, and um, he took time with them, and he just spoke so highly of me. And, and he did that, again, because I knew he's such a smart dude, like, he knew that would mean a lot to my mother and father. He yeah. knew he's Robin Williams, and he knew that speaking highly about me would mean a lot to my, my folks, and it did. And they were just like, oh, my God, Robin Williams spoke so highly about our son. Like, it was such a, yeah. an important and nice moment for them. And I knew that he had just gone out of his way to, to do that. And, you know, a lot of guys won't do that. There's a couple guys that have. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and again, like I said, I believe me, I'd love to believe it's just because I'm so above, you know, being spectacular, but it's just that they're being generous mm -hmm. you know, and they don't have to be generous. That's a really nice thing. I found it very interesting what you said, uh, a couple things. One, that he would come and just hang out with the boys, you know, go back and you sit around at the table with the other comics. It's like, that's pretty cool when when somebody who made it as far as he did can come back and still the essence of just being a stand-up comic. And it's just, there's a, probably a fraternity amongst you guys that is just, just fun to kind of hang out and have that camaraderie. Uh, you know, a comic is a comic, whether you make it to winning an Oscar or whether you're starting off opening up five minutes at, you know, Yuck Yucks in Winnipeg, Manitoba, or whatever it may be. You know, it's funny. No comedian, and that's exactly it, no comedian wants the other comedians to think they're a douche. Like, <laughs> nobody wants to come in and sit at the comics table at the cellar and have the other comics go like, ugh. Like, you know, it's, you know that, that table has been made famous, like, on Tough Crowd at first, because that's where that show came from, was the table back there, the way we just sit there and abuse each other. And then uh, Louis has had it on so many times in his show. Right. Um, yeah, but that's, that's the place I'm talking about. That little table in the corner there is uh, where so much of this stuff started. And, uh, you know, they, like, you know, when you know, Scientology will come in or Chris Rock and they sit there and they talk to the comedians. And it's just a place where you know you can kind of come in mm -hmm. and be yourself and be comfortable. And I think it brings a lot of those guys back to when they were coming up. And you really do love those days, man, of just sitting around. I mean, I'm sure you guys have it, too. Yeah. You just sit around and, and, and you know, you, you bullshit with the guys, and it's just this great feeling of I'm not talking to fans right now. I'm not explaining yes. where I get my ideas from or, hey, how do you guys heal your injuries? You're just hanging with the guys who get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the other thing that was interesting is when you said, you know, Robin is a giant. He, he won an Oscar, and... I was going through my head as you've been talking, trying to think. I mean, like you said, you got Seinfeld, you got Chris Rock, you got uh, Steve Martin, maybe. Yeah. But uh, it doesn't get much bigger than Robin. Uh, tell me about how he did his stand-up, in your opinion. I mean, I know you probably structure your show, but Robin always seemed like he was just improving most of what he was doing. Was that just his performance, or was that actually the way he was doing his set? It was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. It was never quite the same mm -hmm. both times. But he would be he would repeat ideas and then repeat jokes and maybe he'd get to them a little bit differently. But he absolutely had a set. Like when he was doing specials, he knew what he was going to do. Right. But it would come together in a weird way. It was like watching particles collect around a magnet. You know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. all this random crazy stuff. But then it begins to form something real. Um, I remember the first time we watched him in '98 was what uh, Colin Quinn and I went downstairs, I believe, uh, to watch him. And let's be, we went down there to not like him. You know, we didn't think he was going to be any good. Like, oh, so what, Robin's coming into improv. Wow, interesting and, uh, thought. Like, you were thinking, oh, who's this fat cat coming back? He's not going to care anymore. Yeah, we don't care. We're not impressed. Yeah. And he was so topical. I mean, I don't even remember what the topics were of the day. Yeah. But it was so topical and so absolutely fresh. It could not have been anything other than topical, fresh material. <laughs> And as we're walking back up, Colin went, that son of a bitch really does have a genius streak, doesn't he? I'm like, absolutely, man. <laughs> like, we both, he took two cynical pricks and made us just shake our heads and go, he really is a brilliant dude. And, uh, you know, he was just on fire and smart and relevant. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that that stuff formed into bits that he did on whatever special he shot after that. Mm -hmm. But his ability to just go up and riff, uh, he was very courageous. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not easy to do, especially when you're that famous. When you're right. a guy who's that famous, because I saw Robin go on and not have great sets. Mm -hmm. I never saw him bomb, but I saw him go on there and not get laughs. I saw Robin go on there and have very tepid, mediocre laughs. 
like that type of crap for 20 minutes. Yeah. But he was working on material, and he was working on ideas and concepts and playing, and he didn't rush back into what's familiar. Like, mm. he might have done one strong old bit just to close and say, good night, guys, thanks. But, man, he was up there, you know, in the gym working it, and we love guys that come in and do that because that's, that's what you're supposed to do. That's interesting because I remember Seinfeld did that a few years ago too, and he was trying. He, he got rid of all of his classic stuff yep. and was trying to come up with new material and start with like five minutes here and ten minutes here. And he even he, he was saying like, I was wondering if I could still think of funny stuff. And as a comedian, to continually come up with fresh stuff, I mean, that's kind of the uh, the, the the challenge, I would imagine. Yeah, it really is, and it's also being able to do it where there's the risk that you're going to bomb. And once you feel like people expect a lot out of you it becomes harder. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, for him, he knows he's such a, you know, again, Seinfeld or, or Robin or Chris, those guys knew who they were, and they know that people, because people go crazy when they walk on. Right. And so to stand up there after that love and the expectant looks of, oh, God, it's him, cricket, cricket. <laughs> I mean, that's a hard thing to do, man. So when, when real celebrities come in and bomb, it's much harder than when I bomb, or much harder than when one of the other guys bombs, because, yeah, people know who I am, but not like that. That's a different level yeah. of expectation. And Chris is great. Chris is the best at it because Chris Rock will walk on, and he'll go, the first thing he'll say is they go crazy. He'll go, lower your expectations, and he gets a laugh. <laughs> and he puts his notebook down, and he, and he plays, and he bombs sometimes, and he kills sometimes. But he's putting together an hour, and that's how you got to do it. So it's, I think, much harder when you're really famous to throw yourself into the pit like that. Do you think you get, like, for example, if we go see Ozzy, and, and you know, Ozzy sometimes still sings great, sometimes he has some issues, but you don't really care as much because it's Ozzy and you just sure. love him so much. Is, you, is, is it like that at all with comedians? Do they get a little bit of a break if you're a Robin Williams and your material isn't as strong because you're Robin Williams? Absolutely. Yeah. But Seinfeld said for the first few minutes, I've, and, and I think he's right about that, because after five or ten minutes, they get it, you're you. But now they want, you know, if you're not being funny, the respect level you'll get is that they won't heckle you. Or they won't yell. They might yell something fun to help you, you know, and annoy you. But they're not going to yell, get off, or you suck, (laughs) like they would with an unknown. And the difference between the music and and stand-up is that, like, you know, the the, the stand-up to laugh, it's kind of contingent upon catching people off guard. Mm -hmm. Like a laugh kind of catches you off guard, and that's why you laugh, or a joke. Whereas when you've heard the same joke so many times, it's harder to enjoy it. But the same song brings back a certain emotion, and you can enjoy it the more you hear it. Good you know? point. Good it's point. It's really weird. I mean, you can't get sick of a song. But, you can, man, I can, I can listen to, to Ozzy sing I Don't Know, or I can listen to them sing you know, N.I.B. or Sweetly for forever and, and, and love it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you've got that... Uh familiarity with it as well sure. you know and, and and speaking you know i've been watching a lot of stuff uh of robin williams from robin williams the last few days because he was always one of my favorites but i always loved him uh, as a talk show guest probably the yeah. best talk show guest of all time and you watch back and like you said yeah he would throw so much stuff up against the wall if he bombed it didn't matter because he threw up something else right away and you forgot about the bad joke and he just kept going until he got that laugh and then when he got the laugh he would really work it you know, you know, I I saw because Fallon was pretty emotional when he yeah. talked about it. It was really nice and a genuine moment. And he they reshowed his first Carson appearance. Yes. And uh, you know, Robin gets up and he's running around and he's talking to the audience and he's like, you know, and I'm like, the balls. Yes. Do that on your first Carson. Like the courage to stand up and run in front of Johnny's face 
And, you know, that's, that's absolute fearlessness. That's yeah. absolute confidence and a certain psychotic ability to just be funny, a funny guy. Um, if anyone didn't think Robin Williams was genuinely a funny guy, the fact that he did that, I can tell you as a comic, I would never have the courage to run, run around in front of Johnny Carson. I mean, that was just, especially my first time. And he just did what he did, and that was it. He was going to sink or swim with what he did. And that's a great point, too, because in about you know, 79, 80, whenever it was, Carson was one of the most powerful men man in show business. And if Carson didn't like you, you're done. Like You wouldn't get back on The Tonight Show. And for Robin to do that and just completely, like you said, he went into the crowd. You know, yeah. he, he grabbed the, 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 the mic and just, the, you know, they turned the lights on and everything because he was so far out away from the rest of the lights. Like, that's a good point. Like, nowadays, it's a little bit more accepted. But back then, I bet you he probably was the first guy that had ever done something like that. Yeah, I mean, and, and that was, I mean, Jonathan Winters was a big influence in his, the unpredictability. Yeah. But, like, with that, you can sink or swim or you can die with it. And he took such a chance. And, and I'm sure Johnny knew who he was already and liked him. But if that bombed, that was going to be an uncomfortable thing. <laughs> yeah. But he would just fire all anything out. It was like Robert Williams was just rapidly throwing punches. So if one missed, he was going to uppercut you. If yeah. that missed, he was going to swing his, his, his leg and, and kick you in the jaw. It was always something that was going to get you, you know. But, man, you better be a quick thinker to pull that off. Absolutely. Is there a favorite Robin Williams moment for you uh, over the years, either a stand-up that you saw or a performance of his? You know, as a performer, it's really hard to say because I like so many of his films. You know, his, so many of his films I thought were great. Uh, Good Will Hunting, obviously, was so uh, mm-hmm. was such a brilliant performance. Or, uh, or Garp. I, I can't think of a favorite moment because I liked so many things that he did. Um, I, I think my favorite, uh, my, my, my first memory of Robin, when I think of Robin, I always think of his album, Reality, What a Concept, mm. because that was one of the first things... I ever listened to as a kid where I can remember me and my buddy turning the volume down because he said the word fuck three times on the record. <laughs> and I still remember the amazing effect I had at hearing fuck on a record. Like, I couldn't believe it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say his first album, Reality, What a Concept, meant a lot to me. Yeah, I remember, the, I think it was, was it Live at the Met, his second record? That's the one that I got into there with all the ridiculous things that he would say. Still remember some of those bits to this day, like you said, classic, classic stuff. I wanted, I wanted to ask you something uh, as a comedian. How do you, I mean, at this stage of the game, and obviously you're, you're, you're a fairly, fairly big-time comedian, do you still get hecklers? And how do you deal with hecklers that are in the crowd? Do you even bother with them anymore? Always, yeah. I mean, I'll always bother with them. Uh, it depends on... Because almost like it's it's like it, it really is the equivalent of if you're standing like say you're standing in the ring if some some uh, someone comes out and just pushes you yeah. puts their fingers on your chest and shoves you like that that's what the, they're testing you in front of everyone right you have to respond somehow now if they push you gently you can't pick them up and crack a chair over their skull because <laughs> all right, right the crowd's gonna go Jesus he was just playing so you you have to judge the push they've just given you. And so, like, when somebody yells at me, it's like, are they being funny and just missing? Are they enjoying me and trying to be a part of and playful? Or are they undermining me and trying to sabotage what I'm doing? Um, and you make that decision, and, and that's the level of, of striking back that I'll do. Like, I was on stage at the cellar recently, maybe six months ago, and I was really killing. It was a weekend show, and it was a great show. And that was one of those sets where I just know everything's working. I have about 30 seconds left. And this table of middle-aged bachelorettes in the corner, bachelorette party, screams, get off or next. 
And like, I was really <laughs> having a good set. Yeah. And so I was, it, it was such an obnoxious thing to say. And it was so incorrect in that moment mm-hmm. that I knew, like I, I almost salivated when I heard that because it was a heckle that I knew that I could remove the gloves. And I knew I could throw any punch that I felt <laughs> like. Like, I knew I could really wind up. <laughs> right. Because it was one of those things where you knew the audience would be with you, because what they did was such an egregious and stupid mm-hmm. interruption. Um, so I really was vicious to them. Because it annoyed me, too, because it was, such a, it was such a selfish and rude thing to do. While we're all enjoying ourselves, you know, they're acting. And they're not just trying to be funny. They're trying to wreck what yes. they're doing. Because they probably objected to one joke. So, yeah, I took the gloves off, and really, uh, you know, I, I've done that to mostly the men. You know, with men, it's a little easier to hit harder back, you know, because people kind of expect it when a guy, right. you know, says something. So I, you... I kind of prefer when a guy's going to be vicious, because then you can really get him. Do you remember what you said to the bachelorette party? Well, I, no, I just remember there was about a, a couple of C-bombs uh, <laughs> dropped. It. I think that was the first thing I said. I, I think I said something like cunt, and then words followed after him, and I closed with cunt. I, mean, I, I, think, I, I think I bookended it with that. <laughs> it felt delightful. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, and we were mentioning you got a, a new show on Vice.com called The Jim Norton Show, which is a talk show where you're the host. You know, it's something I've wanted to do for so many years because I love interviewing people, and, and I knew that I would have language freedom. Mm-hmm. content freedom in the sketches and uh, content freedom in the interviews and uh, and I do and it's like Vice has been amazing and uh, and the guests have been really good I mean it was we only shot over two days so we had to to book people at a two day period which was difficult mm-hmm. and um, every show had something about it that I really loved you know and there's technical things I would love to fix as we go forward which I think we're going to do more but uh, I was really happy with it and it was, I wanted it to feel like kind of like a, uh, a public access show oh, where yeah. there's like a, uh, you know, uh, like a kind of an, uh, a feeling where a mistake might happen or something might get screwed up. Because to me, that's what real performing is, as you know. It's not always going to be perfect. I don't always want it to look perfect. And, and how many episodes of the show did you do? Uh, we did four. It was supposed to be a one-episode pilot. Oh, okay. And then we talked them into two. And then we're like, since we're doing it on different days, let's just do it. We did four. So it was really great. And you had Tyson on and Dana White, and this is a pretty good guest. That was one episode. I got one episode. Uh, the final episode was David Tell. Uh, Whitney Cummings was an amazing interview because, you know, she had such an interesting life. And a guy named Freeway Rick Ross, um, who was uh, one of the biggest drug dealers we've ever had in this country. And uh, he's supposed <laughs> to be in prison for the rest of his life, but he got out on a technicality, and uh, he was awesome. He was wow. Really I can yeah, imagine. the guy the rapper took his name from. So um, he was a very, very uh, open guy, and he discussed the being a drug kingpin, you know, he was a tennis player first. It was such an interesting uh, life experience. Are you going to do more uh, more shows? Absolutely. I, I want to do more. We just, you know, it's funny. My manager was supposed to talk to, to Shane and Eddie, the guys that, you know, are, are the heads of Vice. But, uh, you know, and then Monday, and then, you know, and, and then Robin, uh, the news about Robin came out. So, of course, my manager was unavailable. Uh, right. So, you know, maybe next week or the week after they'll start talking. Well, I mean, uh, it, that's one of the cool things, too, about, about doing a show. It's why I like doing the podcast. You get a chance to, to, to talk to people that you admire and talk to your friends. Uh, that you don't form, usually get a too, chance. It's not a five-minute discussion. You can actually talk for a little while. Yeah, exactly, because most of the time, like I know if I see you, it's in the studio at Opie Anthony or backstage somewhere, and I say, hey, what's up, dude? Blah, 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 blah. Okay, see you later. Then you get a chance to actually sit down and, and shoot the breeze for a while, which is cool. So It's really nice. Uh, last question, Jimmy. I, I know I mentioned earlier that you uh, you basically have a collection of taking pictures with famous people. Is that correct? That's yes. 
Who's the like a couple of the most famous people that you have, and a couple of the most uh, uh, like weird ones? I would say the most famous people I have are probably Muhammad Ali. Wow, Pele. I don't know. I, you know, I have Keith Richards, who's pretty famous. That's uh, a good one. But yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a good, really good one. Jeter. Um, I got Shaquille O'Neal. You know, uh, Abdul Jabbar, Hank Aaron. I mean, I'm trying to think of who the who the bigger actors celebrities are. I don't have Pacino or De Niro, unfortunately. Uh, I got Tom Hanks. That's a good uh, one. Like Michael Douglas. Yeah, I got a bunch of good ones. I mean. There's, there's not that many idol Woody Allen, not many idols that I have that I have not met yet. I've been very, very lucky. Now my, this is how greedy I am. I want them as a group. Like I got all of Metallica and all of Motorhead, but I want them now as a foursome or as a threesome. You know, that, I'm, I'm getting greedy. Like, I, I just now I want them in different situations. I want the original <laughs> yeah. four members of Kit. It's like why don't I just shut up and be grateful for what I have? <laughs> you want them dressed as clowns? You want them lounging yeah. in the back room? Exactly. I got Martin Sheen, but I want him in his apocalypse now. Out. I want to just shut my fat face and be grateful that I'm doing this for a living. You know, the weird ones. I don't know who, who a weird one would be. Um, you know, like some tragic ones, like you know Chris Kyle. I got you know the guy that uh, with the sniper who was killed. Uh, oh, okay. Jesse Ventura uh, sued. I was happy I got him, and you know, like Bernard Getz. You know, who Bernard Getz was. Yeah, it was uh, a subway shooter or something, right? Yeah, the subway gunman. We interviewed him. I've got a few really. Uh, how did you get Bernard Getz? We interviewed him a few times. Oh, on opening Anthony? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got Sharpton, even though I don't like him. I got him. Yeah. Um, you know, I got some, some, a few bizarre ones like we, that, we, too. We have a good one when we did that, uh, that Xerox show where I had, I had a broken leg on the show on the ground, and you stuck your head in there and took the picture. Dude, that's a great one. We also, you also have a great one with your, uh, you had the sling around your arm. And I broke through. I had that awful mesh shirt on, and I, dumped, right. I, I, looked, I looked at a sack of lard. Like I got caught in a tuna net. It was really humiliating. <laughs> you have to send that to me, so I'll, I'll post it when this uh, when this interview goes up. I will. I'll text it to you, or I'll email it to you. Thanks a lot, Jimmy, and thanks for giving me your uh, your memories on Robin Williams. All of us were shocked, and I wanted to talk to you because I knew that you knew him and had a good relationship with him. So I appreciate you uh, you sharing your your memories of him with us. Thanks, buddy, and uh, it was good talking to you. I'll see you soon. All right, bud. Bye. Bye, Chris. Till next week, sir. Nanu, sayonara, shalom, das bedonje, ciao, ping long salvi. All of us here on this wonderful little planet of sand. Catch you later. Thanks to Jim Norton. Great guy, and, and, and thank you for his memories on Robin Williams. We're going to miss you, Robin, uh, but Jimmy, thank you so much for coming through. Always great to talk to Jim. you got to check out his new show on Vice.com called The Jim Norton Show. And don't forget to go to Time.com to read his really moving tribute to Robin Williams. You don't want to miss out. Thanks to all of you as well who picked up the new Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? Doing great on the charts. Debuted at number 54, our highest debut ever. Uh, Lights go out, getting higher and higher. Uh, We were number 34 this week on Active Rock. The highest it's ever been. Keep on checking it out. If you like it, Thank you very much. We're going to be hitting the road with Theory of a Dead Man starting September 17th. So come check us out. And as promised, a few shout-outs to some of you taking the time to leave ratings and comments on iTunes. The Epic Triforce, Wesley Pipes 99, Ivy Joe, King Jeezy, The Only Matt, Kyle 15665, and Y Foxes. 
also gave us five-star ratings. Thank you so much. And Devin and SC commented, entertaining pod for wrestling fans and music fans and non-wrestling fans alike. Eric Hershey commented, UFO experts, the zoo by the scorpions on the cowbell, and student loan officers. Yes, please give me more. Big ups to all of you for listening. I wouldn't be doing this if not for you. Thank you so very much. I also wouldn't be doing this if not for my amazing sponsors who let me drop two shows every week for you for free. If you want to help support the shows, the easiest way to do that is to do your online shopping through my Amazon links. Easy to find. Go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast Free banner at the top of the page. Then click on Talk as Jericho. You see all three of my Amazon links, Amazon UK, Amazon USA, and, and Amazon Canada. A eh? Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show so we can keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. Yeah, boy. There's no extra fees or hidden charges. You're just getting your shopping done and you're helping me out in the process and keeping this show alive. Keep this show alive. Keep the show alive. If you like to listen, baby, keep the show alive. Yeah, that's it. Another great edition of Talk is Jericho. So cool to have you with us in the meantime and in between time. That's it. Stay hard, stay hungry. Peace, love, and hugs. See you on Friday when my guest will be. This is a good one, man. I worked hard to get this interview. The space ace himself. Ace friendly lead guitar. Shock me. Yeah, Ace Fraley is going to be here. If you don't think I'm going to freak out and mark out and fanboy out, oh, you are wrong. Space Ace coming up on Friday. Check us out. Thank you so much. See you soon. And a big yeah, boy. Some angry member of the kitchen staff. Did you not tip them? Oh, a terrorist around that way. It was a run by fruiting. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcastone.com. That's podcastone.com. <laughs>